Cause we got the alternative energy nuclear free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced on unceded Wurundjeri lands at 3CR in Nam, Melbourne And brought to you with the support of the Ace Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth My name is AC On today's show, we'll hear about the history of African-American resistance to nuclear weapons. Professor Vincent Ntandi is Director of the Institute for Race, Justice and Civil Engagement in Maryland in the US and author of the book African-Americans Against the Bomb, Nuclear Weapons, Colonialism and the Black Freedom Movement. He's speaking here about that book connecting racial injustice, nuclear injustice and imperial injustice. His talk was recorded at Boston Public Library in February 2017 by Truth and Justice Radio. I'd like to first talk about how the book project got started. In 2005, I made my first trip to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And up until that point, as a student, as as an academic, as an activist, most of my work revolved around the black freedom movement and civil rights issues. Nuclear weapons were not on my radar. They were very abstract, like a lot of students. When I went to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I met with Hiroshima survivors, Nagasaki survivors, I was so filled with rage and anger and guilt about what my country had done to Japan that when I returned... I met with my advisor at the time, and I said, I have to find a way now to combine these two passions of mine, eliminating racism and eliminating nuclear weapons. And he said, answer me one question. What did African Americans think about dropping the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And when I pitched that idea to colleagues, many of them said, you're not going to find anything, because African Americans, understandably so, were too busy trying to gain their own equality and freedom. They didn't have time to worry about nuclear weapons. Well, they were wrong. In June of 1964, a group of Hiroshima survivors and peace activists were on a world peace study mission. When they came to the United States, the person who organized the event or their trip was uh, the great Japanese-American activist Yuri Kachiyama. And when she met with them, she said, what do you want to do most while you're in the United States? And they all said, see Malcolm X. But Malcolm at the time was traveling through Africa and the Middle East, and she wrote letters to his office and Thought that, of course, none of them got to him. And the last day, she was having a reception for the survivors at her apartment in Harlem, and there was a knock at the door. And she answered the door, and there stood Malcolm. He got him, and he came back. And he said to the atomic bomb survivors, you've been hit by a bomb, but we've also been hit by a bomb, and the bomb that hit us was racism. And he spent the day talking about Vietnam and racism and nuclear weapons, because Malcolm understood what so many before him understood. That the issue wasn't about civil rights, it was about human rights. So my book focuses on black anti-nuclear activists who consistently argued that the fight for freedom and equality in the United States was inextricably linked to nuclear disarmament and liberation movements around the world. And when the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, immediately killing 140,000 people, most of the American public rejoiced. In fact, Gallup did a poll a week after the atomic bombings in which 85% of the American public agreed with Truman's decision to use nuclear weapons in Japan. A robot poll at the same time showed that 22% of the American public wished Japan had surrendered so he could have dropped more nuclear weapons and killed more people. And in fact, no 
poll up until late October of 1945 ever showed more than 4.5% of the American public criticizing Truman's decision. But that wasn't the case in the black community. And part of that, and of course nothing is monolithic, but part of that was because there was already an affinity for the Japanese built into the black community. People forget that in 1935, it was not the United States, it was the Japanese that publicly said they were going to come to the aid of Ethiopia when Mussolini and Italy invaded. When Japanese Americans were interned in this country, many in the black community defended them and thought to themselves and said publicly, here's a group of people that committed no crime and are simply being put in concentration camps for the color of their skin. This could happen to us. And so inside the black community, artists and musicians and journalists and activists, writers, came out immediately against Truman's decision. And so the first place that I looked was the black press. The Chicago Defender, the Baltimore Afro-American, the Pittsburgh Courier, newspapers that were hugely influential where many of the black community got their information and news from. And overwhelmingly, the columnists were critical of Truman's decision. But I wanted to know what the rank and file of the black community thought. So I started going through letters to the editor. Now, when I tell students about this today, they have the luxury of having things like ProQuest where they can put in a couple keywords and hit search and it will all come up for them. I was in the Library of Congress with every single issue going through microfilm over and over looking at letters to the editor. And what I found was it didn't matter if it was a beauty shop owner or a truck driver or a waiter, they were all mostly saying the same thing. They were scared of nuclear war, they wished that Truman hadn't done this. The next place I began to look was the black clergy. I started going through sermons in the black church. And again, I saw a theme. Over and over again, black pastors warning that we don't have enough religion to stop this. There's not enough prayer to stop this nuclear arms race. In fact, it was Langston Hughes who was the first in 1945 to question Truman's racism in this decision to use nuclear weapons, writing in the Chicago Defender. And Hughes was, of course, right. Truman wasn't the most racist president. We have that now. But he was certainly one of the most racist presidents in U.S. history. This is a man that if you go through his journal or his letters to his wife, Bess, he rarely ever refers to African Americans as something other than the N-word. This is a man who sent a $10 check to the Ku Klux Klan to join, but they sent it back to him because he refused to fire Catholic workers at one of his local businesses in Missouri. His mother openly supported the Confederacy, and when she first visited him at the White House, said she'd rather sleep on the floor than ever step foot in Lincoln's bedroom. Uh, he brags in interviews that in his family history, he used to get slaves as wedding presents to start off the housekeeping with. So he was certainly right to question that the role race played in this decision. Zora Neale Hurston, who many argue is very apolitical throughout her career, was not silent on this issue. In fact, I found a letter she wrote to her friend Claude Barnett, in which she referred to Truman as, quote, the butcher of Asia, and was visibly upset that more in the black community were not trying to stop nuclear weapons. But of the Initial criticism, the most far-reaching, came from the black popular front. People like W.E.B. Du Bois and the great Paul Robeson. Du Bois, who had already visited Japan and was lionized there, he came out immediately and likened Truman to Hitler, calling him, quote, one of the greatest killers of our day. He said that the atomic bombings of Japan will set back the progress of colored nations for decades to come. And Paul Robeson, I'm so glad that Steve McQueen, the director of 12 Years a Slave, has now agreed to do a biopic of Paul Robeson. He's such an amazing individual, such a giant in our history. It's completely forgotten. My students have no idea who he is when they come into class. And Paul Robeson immediately went after the colonialism issue. 
In June of 1946, there was a rally in Madison Square Garden. 20,000 people packed in. And they asked the crowd, where do you think the United States is getting the uranium to make nuclear weapons? And the answer, of course, was the Belgian-controlled Congo. But much of this initial criticism ended in 1947 with the Truman Doctrine. Long before George W. Bush ever said, when us or against us, it was Truman who put that line in the sand and said you were either with us or you were now a communist. One of the most dangerous things you could be in the late 40s and early 50s was to be labeled black and red. And so, so many groups fell mute. Some groups, like the NAACP, made a strategic decision to conform. On this issue, they took a sharp right turn. They thought if they allied themselves with Truman and backed his nuclear policies, it would result in civil rights, which of course doesn't happen. But not every group and not every individual thought that peace was a bargaining chip. And so at the same time, out of the communist-led uh, countries came what was known as the Stockholm Peace Pledge, or the Ban the Bomb Petition. Those like Du Bois and Robinson and others, they saw the potential of an H-bomb. The Korean War breaking out, and they said, we're not going to allow another Hiroshima to happen in Korea on another people of color. And so they took the Ban the Bomb Petition, and they went immediately to the black community trying to get signatures. Hundreds of millions of people signed this pledge worldwide to ban the bomb. In the United States, by the summer of 1950, they had gotten over two and a half million signatures, and mostly out of the black community. People like Marian Anderson and Charlie Parker were willing to sign it. And again, when I tell my students today about a ban the bomb petition, big deal, right? Because now we have change.org, and we can sit on our sofas, and we're one click away from being an activist and signing our petition. But that wasn't the case back then. To sign a petition like this, you could lose your job, and people did. They were physically beaten. They tried to brought charges up against Du Bois for being an agent to the Soviet Union. Not guilty, of course. So lives were really on the line for doing this. And so to see this on the, on the dawn of the civil rights movement, and to see many in the black community putting their lives and their careers on the line to stand up against nuclear weapons is extraordinary. And in the 1950s, there's so much going on simultaneously. In 1954, of course, we have Brown versus Board of Education. And in 1955, you have in the summer the heinous murder of Emmett Till. A few months later, in December, Rosa Parks refuses to give up her seat on the bus. But in that same year, in 1955, you have what is now known as the Bandung Conference in Indonesia. The first all-African-Asian conference of non-white nations coming together. And if you read their platform, they were explicit. They were against white supremacy, colonialism, and nuclear weapons. And as all of this was happening, the colonialism issue, the racism issue, nuclear weapons, they all seemed to be linking up. And the person that recognized this the most was Bayard Rustin. Now, a lot of people don't talk about Bayard Rustin or know his history as this amazing civil rights leader because he was gay. And so he was iced out of our, our movement, was marginalized in our history, but he has such a long body of activism dating back to the 1930s. And so Rustin sees what is happening. And he sees at this time that now you have a revolution happening in Algeria. And he sees now that the French government, wanting to be a world power, decides they're going to test a nuclear weapon. Where? In the Sahara, in Africa. Ghana is having their revolutionary movement, and Kwame Nkrumah is rising up. And the people of Ghana were fearful that a nuclear weapons test by the French, oh, the fallout would affect the cocoa industry. And so Rustin says, we got to do something. And so he starts putting a team together, a British activist, he works with Nkrumah, 
in an effort to try to stop the French test. And not everybody wanted him to go. A. Philip Randolph wanted him to stay here and work on the presidential primaries with Kennedy and so on and so forth. But he says to him, don't you understand? This is the moment of my life. Don't you see how these things are all linked together? I have to go. And so Rustin goes and with his team of African and British activists, they put their bodies on the line, physically put their bodies on the line. Multiple times they try to stop the French until finally the French remove them. And in February 1960, they test their nuclear weapon. Now many will argue this was a failure for Rustin. I don't. Because protests erupted all over the continent. There was such pressure that eventually the French did abandon their test. And he argued that this was the most, one of the most important things he ever did in his life. And I certainly can't talk about black anti-nuclear activism without looking at Dr. King. But Dr. King, many argue, doesn't become involved in foreign policy until Vietnam. They actually look at April 4th, 1967, years to the day he died, with his Beyond Vietnam speech at Riverside Church, in which he refers to the United States as, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. But actually, if you look at nuclear weapons, he was speaking out against this a decade before, as early as 1957. He was publicly speaking out against nuclear weapons. He consistently talked about the triple evils of militarism, capitalism, and racism. He argued that what is it, how how crazy is it to, to worry about integrating lunch counters and then not be worried about the world in which you're trying to integrate? And where was King learning all of this from? His wife, of course. Yeah, this issue, Coretta, she persisted. And Coretta, you have to go back to her days at Antioch College. She was a seasoned peace activist who would consistently talk to her husband about combining these issues and how peace and, and race were interconnected. She was a member and worked with Women's Strike for Peace and Women's International League of Peace and Freedom. But for Coretta Scott King and so many other black females that were anti-nuclear activists, they also had to deal with the racism that existed within the peace movement. There was a lot of prejudice that went on inside the peace movement. And so, for example, there was, at one point, Women's Strike for Peace were having a conference in Detroit. And the black female members wanted to carry signs that said, desegregation or disintegration. And the white members, the leadership said, no way, we're not combining these issues, not going to happen. And it took Coretta Scott King to broker the deal. People like Lorraine Hansberry, who we know, of course, for Raising in the Sun, that was not the only thing that doesn't encapsulate Lorraine Hansberry. She was a feminist, socialist, uh, a radical woman. And she famously went into a movie theater and she saw a film on Hiroshima and comes out and says in the parking lot, no more Hiroshima's, not now, not ever. In fact, the last play that she ever wrote was actually about a nuclear holocaust and what happens to the survivors. And this continues throughout the 1960s. With the Vietnam War, the United States government again repeatedly threatens to use nuclear weapons on a people of color. If you look at groups throughout the Black Power Movement, like the Black Panther Party, if you read the Black Panther Party's executive mandate number one, the first public statement they came out with, they explicitly compare their plight and what they're going through to Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the atomic bombings. And I asked Bobby Seale, the original chairman of the Black Panther Party, was this conscious? Was this on purpose? He said, of course it was. So we always looked at ourselves in an international context. It's why Kathleen and Eldridge Cleaver were invited to go to Hiroshima. In the 1970s, when so many people were exhausted from the Vietnam War struggles and the civil rights movement, 
This issue remained. In fact, in the 1970s, there was what was called the Continental Walk for Nuclear Disarmament. It was supposed to be largely a peaceful exercise, people coming from all corners of the country and meeting in D.C. as a symbolic gesture against nuclear weapons. And it was, except if you were in the South, because the people in the southern leg of this were mostly African-American, and the police made it clear they weren't going to protect them. So they faced death threats and violence, even whites that were walking with them faced threats. So it wasn't just a peaceful exercise if you were African-American. Even during the Carter administration, when Carter wanted to create a neutron bomb, another type of weapon, one of the people that was in his administration trying to talk him out of it was his ambassador to the United Nations, who was Andy Young, Dr. King's right-hand man through the civil rights movement. It was Andy Young who was pushing him to act on South Africa, where the white apartheid government, with Israel's help, were building nuclear weapons. And of course, so much of this was leading to the 1980s. Because in the 1980s, we now saw Ronald Reagan. And when Reagan came into office, he announces he's going to expand the nuclear arsenal, especially with the MX missile. He increases military spending by $180 billion while cutting social spending by $141 billion. And because of Reagan's policies, a new disarmament movement was created. And it was largely under the title of Babies Over Bombs. Many in the black community looked at the money that he was willing to spend on nuclear weapons in the military and saying, we could use that money in our communities. And it started coming from all various places. You know, when I was writing this book and writing for the Huffington Post, and I got a phone call from a gentleman who said, I got to talk to you. I, I've been following your research, and, and, uh, and I was part of this. And so we met, and his name was Greg Johnson in the book, and he was at the time a librarian, him and his wife, at Georgetown. Two African-American ordinary citizens. And they were so interested in this issue, and they were always asking the white community, the peace groups, to come into the black community and organize on nuclear disarmament. And they never did. So they said, you know what, forget it, we'll do it ourselves. And so they started a group with a rotary phone and one flyer called Blacks Against Nukes, BAM. And it grew. Hundreds of members, multiple chapters. They were asked to speak in Hiroshima. They were featured in Jet and in Essence and Ebony Magazine. Two ordinary people doing extraordinary things. It came from athletes. And I'm so glad that we now have a return of the socially conscious athlete. People like LeBron James not waiting for a publicist to tell him to put his hood up when Trevon Martin was murdered. Athletes wearing I Can't Breathe t-shirts. When we think of socially conscious athletes, we of course think of Muhammad Ali, we think of the 68 Olympics with Tommy Smith and John Carlos, but there were others. During this time, they were called Athletes United for Peace, American and Russian athletes who worked together to try to stop the arms race. Among them were Jojo White from the Boston Celtics, Marianne Washington, first African-American female to play on the U.S. National Women's Basketball Team. The entire Baltimore Orioles baseball team went to visit Hiroshima and meet with survivors. You had African Americans in Congress like Ron Dellums, who led the charge against Reagan's military explosion and how much he wanted to build nuclear weapons. And the epitome of all this was the famous June 12, 1982 march, in which one million people, arguably the largest march in United States history, gathered in New York City to protest nuclear weapons. But if you look at the history of that march, the white organizers didn't want to have black participation. 
African Americans wanted to combine the issues of race and colonialism in this march. They said, absolutely not. And so you had groups like Reverend Herbert Daughtry and the Black United Front, the Third, the Third World People's Coalition, people like Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis, Shaka Khan, John Conyers, all trying to broker a deal. And they did. So that on the day of that march, 50% of the leadership was African American. And you had thousands of African Americans coming out of Harlem and Bed-Stuy, all marching for nuclear disarmament, trying to stop raiding. And you know, when I wrote this book, when I was writing it, I knew I was going to have to address President Obama. That was probably the hardest part for me, because as a historian, the worst thing I can do in writing a book is to predict something and then be wrong. And he was still in office, but I knew with the subject matter, I'd have to address it. And President Obama, as a student, um, was against nuclear weapons and was at the June 12th march. And people also forget that to get him elected, there, there were people that came before him. One of his heroes was Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago, who was a staunch anti-nuclear activist, won many awards for his work in that field. People like Jesse Jackson, who, again, people forget that when he ran for the president in the primary in 84 and 88, his nuclear platform was far more anti-nuclear than anybody else running in the Democratic Party. And he got millions of votes. And so Obama becomes president, and not long after, he gives the Prague speech. Arguably the most anti-nuclear speech in United States history, with the possible exception of President Kennedy's commencement address at American University, June 1963, dubbed the Peace Speech. And I bring students uh, every year as part of the Nuclear Studies Institute to Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, to meet with survivors and dignitaries and the mayors and so on and so forth. And I remember going there the year after Obama got elected. It was the first time that we had an ambassador at the ceremony on August 6th, Ambassador Ruse, he sent him there. And the mayor, the former mayor, Mayor Akiba of Hiroshima, started a campaign called the Obama-Majority. I remember watching all these Japanese citizens wearing Obama-Majority t-shirts in Hiroshima. It's the first time in all the years I had gone that I was proud of who my president was. And I had Japanese citizens coming up to me and they were literally handing me stacks of letters. And they were saying to bring these back and send them to your president and thank him for what he was doing. And he continued on this path. He started holding the nuclear security summits in which... Only months before the Ukraine fell into disarray, he managed to get the materials out of the Ukraine that would have produced uh, at least four nuclear weapons. In addition to that, we had the New START Treaty that he got passed. And I think the most important thing that Obama did as president was the Iran nuclear deal without firing a single shot. And I won't ever forget him visiting Hiroshima. Uh, that was something that I publicly called for, and I'm certainly not the only one for years. I knew what it would mean to the Habaksha that I knew personally, and I will never forget being up at 4 o'clock in the morning uh, with my wife while we're Skyping with Coco uh, Tenemoto Kondo and her crying as we're all just watching him visit Hiroshima. That said, I certainly wasn't, uh, he deserves criticism for backing the $1 trillion modernization plan. Certainly now you look back and wish that he would have taken nuclear weapons off hair trigger alert, considering what we have now. Um, certainly should have reduced the arsenal more, no question about it. But I don't put that on Obama. 
I put that on us. Every president needs to be pushed. And if we wanted him to do more, then we should have been out there making sure that he did more. He never said, yes, I can. He said, yes, we can. So, now what? What can we learn from this? I've given this a lot of thought, especially since the election. It's become very personal for me because as somebody who has dedicated most of my life to eliminating racism and nuclear weapons, and then to have a racist in charge of the nuclear weapons, it's very easy where I can feel defeated. But I made a promise to the Habaksha that I wouldn't stop fighting to eliminate nuclear weapons until I die. And it seems now it's more important than ever. Trump has a charge by himself of the nuclear arsenal. There are no checks and balances. He can launch nuclear weapons in minutes. We have enough to end civilization. This is a man who has asked why we can't use them. This is the man who said he would, quote, bomb the shit out of them, kill their families. This is a man who's now proven that he doesn't even know what the START Treaty is. He's called for expanding the nuclear arsenal. Backs the $1 trillion plan. And when we look at my research, when we look at nuclear weapons and how they intersect with race, you can certainly argue with Trump, the non-white world, the threat grows exponentially. His cabinet is a dream team for white supremacists. Trump got the coveted Ku Klux Klan endorsement. In terms of the Middle East, Trump has said that he would be okay with Saudi Arabia having their own nuclear arsenal. He said he wants to get rid of the Iran deal, which would cause Israel to hit them and other nations to build nuclear weapons and bring us into war. He has had an utter disdain for non-white peoples and people of Middle Eastern descent. In Asia, with North Korea, he simply tweets out, it won't happen. He's called for Japan and South Korea to build their own nuclear weapons. Up until recently, he went against the one, one policy with China. This is a man who has now, we know, explored uh, or is in favor of possibly restarting nuclear testing, which we know the effects of nuclear testing on non-white peoples around the world, what it has done to Native Americans, what it has done in the Marshall Islands. That was Professor Vincent Ntandi speaking about Trump and the intersections between racism and nuclear injustice. Thanks to Truth and Justice Radio for recording that talk in Boston. Check out their website, truthandjusticeradio.org. I'm AC Hunter, and you're listening to The Radioactive Show. The Radioactive Show would like to thank the Ace Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting this program to you around Australia. The Radioactive Show is produced in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri Country. If you missed any of today's show, you can download the podcast at our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can call us on 03-9419-8377. You could send us an email at radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free future.